Well, we're starting this morning, uh, Romans chapter 11. This is the 98th message in Romans. Had a little break uh, for a couple weeks, a little series on prayer, but we're back into uh, Romans, and and we're going to be looking this morning at uh, Romans chapter 11, and so I want us to uh, just focus our hearts and our minds upon God's Word as um, I read this chapter for us. I always like to read, when we get to a new chapter, read it in its context, so we're kind of seeing not only uh, the author's intent of the the. Um, the text of Scripture, but also where, where we're going to be going in the next couple of weeks. So you can follow along in your Bibles. Romans chapter 11. Paul asks the question, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles... Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft 
them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things... To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Wonderful text of Scripture. We're going to take a while to get through it. But we'll get through it just like we've gotten through the other ones. So I would encourage you to start reading chapter 11 each week. Just read the whole chapter. Maybe it took us five minutes, whatever. And um, just ask God to show you his truth. I think it was James Montgomery Boyce who told a, a story about Frederick the Great, who was uh, king of Prussia, modern-day uh, Germany and Poland. And he lived, basically, he was the king there from, uh, or he was there from 1740 to 1786, and he asked proof that the Bible is true. Show me some proof. Chaplain, one of his kingly court chaplains, were called in and said, I want to see some proof that the Bible is true. And Frederick, under the influence of the atheistic philosopher Voltaire, had become very skeptical of Christianity. And he did not trust the reliability of the Bible, God's word, at all. And his words to the chaplain Supposedly were, if your Bible is really true, it ought to be capable of very easy proof. So often when I have asked for proof of the inspiration of the Bible, I have been given some large tome that I have neither the time nor desire to read. If your Bible is really from God, you should be able to demonstrate the fact simply. Give me proof of the inspiration of the Bible In a word, one word, your majesty, it is possible for me to answer your request literally, the chaplain replied. I can give you the proof that you ask for in one word. Amazed, the king sat there and what is this magic word that carries such weight of proof? And the chaplain replied with the word, Israel. And Frederick, the great of Prussia, responded only with silence. Because Israel's existence as a nation is nothing less, beloved, than a miracle. A work of God, being faithful to his chosen people, 
in keeping his covenant promises to that people. You stop and you think of what Israel's been through. Egypt enslaved and oppressed Israel. The nation endured attack and captivity under Assyria. The ten northern tribes. Babylon, the two southern tribes. In A.D. 70, Israel's capital, Jerusalem, was destroyed completely. The result is that Israel as a nation was scattered primarily through Europe, Asia. And in the 1940s, the Holocaust of Nazi Germany resulted in the death of millions of Jews. Most people thought, not a chance for Israel. Well, in 1948, against all odds, Israel was established in her homeland as a nation. 4,000 years after its founding, Israel still remains. Why does Israel remain? Because God's word is true. Because we can rely on the faithfulness of God's promises. Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 35 and 37 provides the following promise for Israel. Jeremiah 31, verse 35, it says, This is what the Lord says, He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. What the Lord said there is only if the the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all that they've done. I mean, when you stop and think about it, it's a miracle that Israel still exists. After all the attacks that they've endured, that one word that that chaplain used in defense of the veracity and the truthfulness and, and the faithfulness of God's word, Israel, as a one-word defense, proved to be true. But I want you to understand that not, Israel not only has a past and a present, Israel has a future. And that's what we're going to be looking into as we go through Romans chapter 11. The future isn't, is just as, cert, as certain as the past was observable. And so we have to be reminded of that. Um, when we stop and we think about all that uh, Israel has gone through, I found a devotional commentary. It was written back in 1948 on Romans. Rory Lauren wrote this devotional commentary. And I don't know whether this was actually printed before or after May 14th, but here's what he wrote. He says, God has a program, and he is working to that program. For that reason, he will not cast away his people. World interest will center on them. Remember, this is back in 1948. Yet, and world attention will focus on their homeland. This land, which has been lying in obscurity and barrenness for these many centuries, is destined to play a dominant part in the world's future. It is a strategic pivot of the earth. It is not merely sacred soil for contending sects who are blinded by bigotry. It is strategic to the world's destiny. It is strategic, geographically, politically, prophetically, even as it has been strategic spiritually. Now, when you stop and you think of a quote like that, that was written all the way back then, and then you look at Israel today, clearly the world's attention is focused on Israel, is focused on the Middle East. It's very clear. And see, God is not through with his people yet. God's faithfulness to his covenant promises to Israel serves to assure us as believers of God's faithfulness to us. It gives us the reliability we need in the salvation promises that he made to us. 
And there's many people today, beloved, that argue the simple fact that they say, well, you know, all these assertions about Israel and, and you know, God's done with them. And these people mainly believe in something called replacement theology, where they believe that the church has replaced Israel. So now all the promises to Israel are just transferred over to the church, and who cares about Israel? Well, God made promises to Israel, and those promises are still valid. God is not through with his people yet. They claim that because Israel rejected the Messiah, because Israel refused to accept his offer of the kingdom, God has somehow cast them totally aside as a nation. They think that God is finished with the Jewish people as a nation. And they believe that somehow because of Israel's failures, because of Israel's disobedience to God, that the promises originally given to Israel are now transferred over to the church. And so some people call the church the new Israel. And they say that the church has replaced Israel and that God will no longer work through Israel as a nation toward the accomplishments of his plan, but only through the church. Well, when you stop and you think about the the spiritual condition of Israel that Paul has brought us through in the last two chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 10, when we had to consider Israel's stubborn unbelief. We had to consider Israel's rejection of, of the Christ, the Messiah. We had to consider Israel's stubborn rejection of the gospel time and time again. And they insisted on what? Doing it their own way. Doing it themselves. Well, the question we raised this morning is, Has God rejected his people? That's what he asks in verse 1. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? It's, It's always amazing to me how the word of God is so precise. It it, it says things in such a way that, that are so important that even a little word like then in that verse has implications. I challenge you to go back through the book of Romans and look at where Paul has used that word then. Because it's kind of a attention getter. Nine, chapter 9, verse 30, he says, What shall we say then? And he says that several times throughout the entire book. And so what he's saying is, well, you know what? <clears throat> Israel has been disobedient. Israel has rejected the Messiah. But has God rejected them? I don't know about you, but I am thankful that my salvation is not dependent on me obeying God. I'd be lost a long time ago. <laughs> we all would. See, our salvation is based on God's promise to save us, on his choice of us. And to make it very clear, Ephesians said, you know what? I chose you even before the foundation of the world. So there's no way that you could come up with anything that you did or that who you are, the talents that you have, that somehow God should look down from heaven and go, oh, I need that person on my team. They're such a good speaker or they're such a wonderful musician or they, they do this or they do that. They're so giving. Oh, I just need to get them saved. No, God chose us before we were ever a twinkle in anybody's eye. Before the foundation of the world. I know some of you are on up in age, but I know you weren't here at the foundation of the world. All right? I I just know that to be true. Nobody was. And that's when God made this choice. Just like he chose for his people the nation of Israel. And so Paul says, well, you know what? All these Jews are rejecting the gospel. And I'm sure the question is, well, you know what? If they're rejecting the gospel, if they're rejecting God's way of salvation, is God rejecting them? Has God, in fact, had it with these people? Is he just done? You know, have you ever been in a situation where you're just done? You know, I mean, you just walk away going, I am done. I don't don't want to talk about it. I'm done. You know, that's kind of how this builds up in these chapters. And you begin to wonder, is God done? Has all of the promises that God has made in his word failed? Will they fail the nation of Israel? 
Is God through with dealing with Israel as a nation? Now remember, we began this discussion all the way back in chapter 9. Because at the end of chapter 8, the apostle Paul gave an incredible couple verses about our security in Christ. He says in verse 38 of chapter 8, and this is how we ended chapter 8, he goes, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor anything else Uh, nor to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he made that very clear. That, you know what, as a Christian, as someone who's put their faith and trust in Christ, nothing can change that. Nothing. That everything that goes on in your life after you're a child of God somehow is folded into his plan for you. The good, the bad, the ugly, whatever. Even our sin is folded into his plan for for his glory somehow. And so it began in response to that obvious question all the way back at the end of chapter 8. How can we believe in eternal security as Christians, if, if we can clearly see here, these, these Jews as a whole are not responding to the preaching of the gospel and they're not being saved. And if Christianity isn't true, doesn't that mean that God has, if Christianity is true, doesn't that mean that God has rejected Israel? And if God has rejected Israel, how can we suppose that he'll uphold his end of the bargain when it comes to our salvation? I mean, if he can reject them, who's to say he won't reject us one day when we step out of line? So a lot of people were thinking, well, you know, we're not buying this doctrine of eternal security. And Paul's immediate answer in verse 6 of chapter 9 was very clear. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. See, for God's promises to fail, that means his word fails. And if his word fails in any part, just throw the whole book out. It's very important that we understand that God's word is faithful. When he says something, he means it. And and James Montgomery Boris pointed out these, these seven arguments that Paul lays out here in these chapters, verses 9 through 11. To say, to prove that God's word has not failed. That you know what? His promises to Israel will be fulfilled one day. And he started there in chapter 9 verses 6 to 24. And God's purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed. Because all whom God has elected to save to salvation will be saved. Nobody is going to slip through the hands of God. And so he makes in that section the argument, he distinguishes between the nation of Israel and spiritual Israel. And that consists of those whom God has chosen to know Christ. And he talks about the whole thing just because you're circumcised or just because you're Abraham's your father. That doesn't mean spiritually you're part of this deal. Just like if you were born in this church. It's a member of this church. You know, your parents were members or grandparents were members and you got born and you, you started coming to church. Well, that doesn't make you a Christian. You can even be a member of this church. That doesn't make you a Christian. Hopefully all of our members are Christians. But see, his point is that membership in the visible nation of Israel does not guarantee salvation. Just because you're in and you're part of the club doesn't mean you're saved. Any more than formal membership in in any Christian denomination, whether it's Methodist or Southern Baptist or whatever, guarantees salvation. What determines salvation is the electing grace of God in Christ. And that's always been a matter of spirituality. It doesn't matter about ethnicity or nationality. Or what organization you belong to. 
How many times have you asked somebody about their faith and they come back with, oh, I'm a member of First Baptist. Or I'm a member of, (laughs) well, that's not what I asked you. Or I'm Catholic. Or I'm, well, that's not what I asked you. You know, I'm asking you, do you know your creator in a personal way? I mean, all those things are great. Belong to whatever club you want. But you know what? If you're not understanding that you need a savior to have a relationship with your creator, God, and you don't have that relationship, you're in a world of hurt. I don't know how many churches you want to belong to. That's fine. Go ahead. That's not going to save you. And so that's his first argument. Because all who God has elected to salvation are or will be saved. And it's God who does that. Secondly, in in verses 25 through 29 of Romans chapter 9, and this is kind of all review. He basically says that God had previously revealed that not all Israel would be saved. And that some Gentiles would be. And that's what he talks about in those verses. See, if God had promised that all Jews would be saved and had failed to save some of those Jews, what would happen to God's word? We would say it's null and void. It's, it lied to us. But that's not the case. Because God had already told them, not, you're not all going to believe. And he uses the word remnant a lot. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. These people are going to follow other gods. They're going to become idolatrous. They're going to become scattered. And in their place, God is going to reach out to the Gentiles and they're going to be gathered to Christ. So it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise. Thirdly, he says because... God's purpose toward the the Jewish nation has not failed yet, and his word is still valid. Because the failure of the Jews to believe was their own fault, it wasn't God. And we, we had a whole message on that. See, the Jews refused to believe because they wanted to earn the salvation by themselves. They thought somehow by being Jewish and having all the temple stuff going on, all the sacrifices and doing all this stuff, that somehow that gave them legitimacy before their creator. And that was in spite of Abraham and David and all the rest who were saved in the Old Testament were saved through believing God's promises of a coming Messiah. We were talking on last Wednesday night, we were going through 1 John, and we were talking about the idea that, you know, Hebrews tells us very clearly that all these sacrifices that they did in the Old Testament... I mean, it was like a butcher shop. I mean, these priests were always sacrificing stuff. That never saved anybody. It was a symbol of what was to come. It was a symbol of Christ being shed for our sins. See, they began to forget about what that's pointing to, and they began to trust in those sacrifices, in that religious thing that they had going on. Similar to some churches today. Some churches today believe that, you know, you can get your, your, your salvation comes through something like um, baptism. That you can be baptized, and if you're baptized, well, you're good to go. Well, that, the Bible doesn't teach that. Because if you're saved by your baptism, what are you saved by? You're saved by a work. You're saved by something you just did. And if that's the case, then the Bible's wrong. Because the Bible says it's not of works, right? It's by grace that we're saved. So we have to make sure that we're clearly understanding that. And the same thing with communion. I came out of a church that basically believed that when you took the sacrament of, of communion, you took the wafer and you put it on your tongue, that was, that was earning you God's grace. That's what it was doing. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's just a symbol. Just like baptism's a symbol, When we have communion, I'm not up here doing some hocus pocus and turning the the wine into the blood of Jesus and the little wafer into the, the body of the flesh of Jesus like the Catholic Church teaches. That's heresy. And yet people trust in that. That's why they have mass so often. Because the more masses you go to, the more grace you get. You know, it's just the way it works. 
But see, the point here is that the failure of them to believe, it wasn't God's fault. It wasn't, they didn't, they couldn't point to God and say, well, you set up this whole thing. No, it was their own fault. They weren't listening to God. The majority wanted to be approved by God on the basis of their own good works, on their own self-righteousness. And they would not submit to the righteousness that comes through the work of Christ, through faith in Christ. So they rejected Christ altogether. Well, the fourth thing that Boyce points out is the purpose toward the nation of Israel has not failed because some Jews, Paul himself, was an example. And we're going to look at this today. They believed and they became saved. And so, as long as there's even one Jewish person who has been saved, no one can claim that God has rejected his people utterly, in totality. Paul was at least one, even if there were no others, which there were, by the way, but even if there wasn't, the fact still remained that God didn't reject entirely Jews as a nation because Paul was saved. So God has always preserved a considerable remnant of believing Jewish people. Not a lot of them, but they're there. The fifth thing he points out is because it has always been the case that even in the worst of times, a remnant has been saved. And for that, he brings up the illustration of Elijah. We're going to get into that probably next week. This dark period. That basically Elijah felt he was the only one. I'm the only one left. God says, no, you're not. I have 7,000 just like you. I mean, that's a small number if you stop and think about it. When you're talking about millions and millions and millions of Jews, you only got 7,000 in one. That's a small number. But the fact of the matter is that God had a remnant. He always has a remnant. And then the sixth thing he points out is that God is not done with one of the arguments that Paul uses with the Jewish nation yet is because the salvation of the Gentiles, which is now occurring, is meant to arouse Israel to envy and thus be the means of saving some of them. And we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. Because we've heard over and over in the passages that we've looked at, well, look, these Gentiles are getting saved, Israel. That's correct. But the reason they're getting saved is to make you jealous. See, that's really why a lot of Jewish people don't embrace what we do here. Because they're thinking, who do you think you are? You're a bunch of Gentiles. I mean, we're God's chosen people. We're the Jewish people. What are you thinking? Now you have some special relationship with God through this guy who died on the cross? See, God has to open their eyes to the truth. But in the meantime, as all these Gentiles are coming into this relationship with God, there's some jealousy that's, that's there. Because they've always been God's chosen people. So when you read the New Testament, well, we're a chosen people. We're priests. They're going, what? That, that's just beyond their furthest imagination. And so is God writing them off? Well, Paul says, no, that's not the case. Rather, God is using the day of Gentile salvation. What we're seeing now, thousands of Gentiles coming to Christ. But somehow that's going to work for good for Israel in the end. Because it's through God's working among these Gentiles that Israel is being stirred. Their, 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 their hearts are being, their conscience. It's God's working there. And some are being saved, by the way. And the last thing he points out here in verse, or the seventh thing, he says, we know that God's word toward Israel hasn't failed his purpose because in the end, all nation, all Israel will be saved, it says. And we're going to look at what that means when we get there. And thus God will fulfill his promises to Israel nationally. Okay. And so this is God's wonderful plan of, of salvation. This is all about Israel. What we're reading here. Uh, Leon Morris says this in one of his commentaries. He says, Paul has made it clear that God is working out a great purpose and he has insisted on divine predestination and election. The will of God is done. He has also insisted that human responsibility is real and important. 
And he has made it plain that this must be borne in mind when considering the fact that Israel has not entered the blessing as Gentile believers have. What then does it matter to belong to the chosen people? Who cares is what he's saying. At first sight, it may seem not very much, for Gentiles may be saved as well as Jews. But it is far from Paul's thought that being a Jew matters little. He goes on to show that while in the providence of God, Israel's sin and unbelief have been used to open up the way for the Gentiles. Now, the conversion of the Gentiles will lead to the conversion of the Jews because they're going to get jealous and God's going to work, do a work there. The Jews still have a place in God's plan. Charles Hodge says this about Romans 11. He he says, basically, it breaks down into two parts. He says, in the former part, the apostle teaches that the rejection of the Jews was not total, that there was a remnant and perhaps a much larger remnant than than many might suppose. In the latter part, he shows that this rejection is not final. One other commentator says, this partial rejection is not eternal but temporary. For after it has served the various ends which God had in view in decreasing in decreeing it, it shall come to an end. The entire nation shall be restored. And with the Gentiles, they shall realize the final unity of the kingdom of God. Now, we got a ways to go before we get to all that. But the question this morning, has God rejected these people? Has God rejected... His chosen people. Um, and basically, Paul asked that question right there in verse 1 of, of chapter 11. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And he gives a very short, quick answer. Forceful answer. He says there what? By no means. What's interesting is when you look at the original language here, that, that, that verb rejected, it really means to cast away. Sometimes it's, it's translated thrust away or put away. One work has it translated pushed aside, disowned. You might read it this way. God did not reject his people, did he? Or is God through with the Jews? That's really what the question that Paul is asking here. And he knows, like I said before, he knows just like the Lord God is through the Holy Spirit has given him the ability to discern when he's talking to these people, he knows what's going on in their head. And they're probably going, hey, I got a question back here. And he's, he's answering the question before they even ask it. Just like the Lord did. And so he says, by no means. That's, that's pretty authoritative. It basically means absolutely not. It's unthinkable. There's no way this would ever happen. May it never be. You might say shame on that thought for you even bringing up that question. That God would reject his own people. And that's important to us. And then he begins to lay out his argument, why? And he gives basically two examples. So he says, I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means. And then he says, for I myself. So you know what Paul does? He lays himself out there as an illustration. That what they just question, is God rejecting his people? Absolutely not. He doesn't just drop the microphone and walk away. <laughs> But he stays there and he explains why this is not so. The first evidence that God has not rejected his people Israel is is the fact that God, what? He saved Paul. He saved the apostle Paul. And now when you, you, you stop and think about some of these things, I mean, Paul reminds his readers that he is authentic in his Jewish faith. He has all the right credentials, you might say. And for those who are Jewish, that's a big deal. And so he says there, he says, for I myself, first of all, he says, I'm an Israelite. Then he says, I'm a descendant of Abraham, and then I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. 
So if God rejected his people, the argument is, why then is Paul a Jew, a believer in Jesus? If he's to be rejected. If God has in fact cast Israel aside because of the rejection of the Messiah, he, he, he certainly would have rejected Paul. Because he was a Jew. I mean, in his traditions of being a Pharisee, he was out there persecuting Christians. And yet God still saved him. I mean, talk about grace. You know, I don't know what your background is here today, but I'm just here to tell you, if you're looking for forgiveness, you've come to the right place. Because you know what? Only Christ can grant you that forgiveness. Coming to this church is not going to get you any forgiveness. Warming a, a seat is not going to get you any forgiveness. Praying, giving, putting money in the offering or, or whatever. That's not going to get you forgiveness. The only way that you're going to be granted forgiveness is when you come to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and say, you know what? I have sinned. There's nowhere else for me to go. <laughs> Please save me. Please save me. Forgive me on my sins. Have mercy on me. Because of your work on the cross, and I know that you were risen the, th- the third day and victory, victorious over sin and death. No one else has done that. When you have a testimony and you can testify to the, the, the truthfulness of God, all right, it reminds people that, you know what, there's some authenticity to your faith, that you have some credentials to back up what you're claiming. See, and this is what Paul is doing here. He's laying out this argument and he's saying, you know what, I'm not a Jew that was a proselyte. I'm not a, I'm not a, a Gentile who converted over to Judaism to be part of the in crowd. That's not the case. I, I'm in the bloodline, pal. And if God rejected his people, why was Paul a Jew, a believer in Christ and not part of that rejection? And so... He, he worked in direct opposition to the things of Christ when he was Saul. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, it tells us about some of his testimony when Christ confronted Paul on the road to Damascus just prior to his conversion. And he asked Saul at the time, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And considering his own testimony in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. <laughs> See, Paul once identified, beloved, with the same beliefs that these Jews were following. He himself was tied to Judaism. And you know what? He did rather well. <laughs> he wasn't just some funky. If someone could boast about their position within Israel in terms of pedigree and performance under the requirements of of Judaism, it was Paul. I mean, it's it's amazing when you read in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, Paul says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. Because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. See, Paul himself was just like every other Jew. He thought somehow he could do this certain performance of works before God and somehow he would acquire righteousness. That somehow that would make him more acceptable. 
That's why he says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, he says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, if you're going to boast, you know, talk about boasting, I'm the one that should be boasting. I could be boasting. That's what Paul's saying. He says, I far more, because I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He believed so much in what he believed in that he was willing to kill other people. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. And he's talking about, you know, on the outward part. Obviously, he had sin in his heart. He understood that. It's the same guy that wrote what? For all of sin and false, you're the glory of God. So the argument is, if, if God has indeed cast aside Israel because of their stubborn insistence on, on trying to attain righteousness by what they did, then Paul would have been cast aside as well. But that's not the case. If God had rejected Israel because of their rejection of Christ, then Paul himself would have been rejected because he was leading the whole movement that rejected Christ, basically. So he says, no, first of all, I was an Israelite. That word Israel is really there to help us to remember God's people's, it's the, it's the covenant name. It really refers to the, the people who sometimes we call Hebrews, we call them Jews, we call them Israelites. But when you stop and you, you think about that, the idea that Paul was an Israelite when we when we think of, of Jews as being Hebrew um, there's not a lot of understanding where that word necessarily came from from what I could discover um, a lot of people say it derived maybe from the name Eber back in Genesis chapter 10 similar to a word Semite, but whatever. I mean, we understand what that means. And then they also were called Jews, which basically has the idea from Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, um, one of the most prominent tribes of the twelve. And the name kind of stresses its ethnic background. Um, so the distinguishing feature of Israel is that it's the people's covenant name. It was the name given to Jacob. Remember when he wrestled in Genesis 32 with the angel? And God blessed him. See, as soon as we recognize that Israel points to a covenant or a promise, we see that Paul's choice was appropriate. Why would he say that? I'm an Israelite. Because he's, he's saying this is based on God's covenant promises for us but he doesn't stop there because he's he's really saying if god can break a promise then he's not god god never breaks a promise secondly he says they're what not only an israelite but i'm a descendant of abraham i'm sure we've all sang the song father abraham had many sons you know you know that whole song well, there's some, you know, there's some, that's what, in, in the Jewish culture, that's a big deal. To be a son of Abraham? To be in that bloodline? Well, Paul uses this, this phrase here. And he does it to, to show that, you know what? Being a descendant of Abraham had Christian importance as well. Because he showed earlier that Abraham, what? In the book of Romans, when we were going through, he pointed to Abraham as what? An example of what? An example of faith. And that all those who have faith are therefore Abraham's true spiritual children. Back in Romans 4, he talked about that. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile. So he wanted to bring that in. Hey, just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean, you know, you just can't cut the line there and say, well, I'm not any longer a descendant of Abraham because I am. And then the third thing he says of the tribe of Benjamin. See, he's building an argument on his own testimony, on his own experience. Benjamin, many of you know, was one of the smallest tribes in Israel. It was significant, though, for a couple reasons. First of all, 
Benjamin was the only son of Jacob who was born to have been born in Israel. The others were born on the far side of the desert. Secondly, Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, was within its territory. Thirdly, Benjamin was the only tribe that remained with the tribe of Judah in the south, remember? After they had their whole breakup. And so these northern tribes quickly drifted away. They followed other idolaters and idolatresses and all the kind of stuff they got into. Worshipped other gods. But Benjamin in the south, along with Judah, remained at least somewhat closer to God. They preserved a larger measure of righteousness. So they survived a little bit longer until the conquest by Babylon. But it's important, I think, that when, when Paul is pointing out here is, you know what? I am someone here who should be listened to. Has God rejected Israel, his people? He says, by no means, because I am evidence. I'm an Israelite, I'm a descendant of Abraham, and I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And you say, well, they didn't do the right thing. Shouldn't God reject them as a basis of that? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19... 1 Samuel 12, 19. We'll close with this. When the people sinned by, remember they asked God for a king and later confessed it. They said this, we have added to our other sins by, of evil by asking for a king. And then in, in verse 20, Samuel answered, it says, here's what he says, listen, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil Yet do not turn away from the Lord. See, he's not denying the evil that they did. He's, oh, you've done a lot of evil, trust me. But you know what? Don't turn away from, from the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. For the sake of his great name, the Lord, what's it say? Will not reject his people. Because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. See, this speaks to the very nature of our eternal security. As Christians. Because that's exactly what God does to us. When we come to Christ, he makes us his very own. He adopts us. Psalm 94 speaks of of God's great judgment on the world and, and his disciplining those he loves. But he explains it this way in verse 14. Psalm 94 verse 14. He says, For the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. In Jeremiah 31, 37, it says, only if they, we've read, read this earlier, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done. So Paul's, he was just engrossed in the Old Testament. And so he understood very clearly that, you know what, this isn't something new. Israel's not going to be cast aside. There's always been a remnant. God has worked through remnants before. But how could God do that and still remain God if he rejected Israel? He couldn't. Well, a couple applications here. First of all, we should never be discouraged in our own evangelism. Because you know what? Everybody that God calls to faith in Christ Jesus is going to come to him. You know, I I don't think it's a matter of going out and saving people. We don't do that. We go out and we give the good news. We give the gospel. And the reason we do that is because we know that somehow God can activate that faith in their, their hearts and their lives. If they're one of the elect, I don't know who's elect and who's not. So what's the, what's the, the deal? Do you wait around till, you, till somebody comes up and says, hey, I'm one of the elect, share the gospel with me. Well, that's not going to happen. See, the idea is when we leave these four walls and we go out into a lost and dying world, it should just be part of our everyday life of sharing the gospel in practice, in preaching, teaching, sharing our testimony. Well, nobody ever believes. You don't know that. You don't know that. 
You don't know if the, the, the lady at the grocery store that maybe you gave a little track, maybe she went home and read it. Maybe she got saved. And your paths never crossed again. Don't ever get discouraged in our evangelism because God is at work, beloved. Even when you reach out to Jewish people, don't get discouraged. God was, was clear. He, he reached out to Paul, who most of us would have said, that guy doesn't have a prayer. I mean, he's out there killing people. I mean, it would be like sharing the gospel with a member of ISIS. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's kind of what, what, what was going on. And here's Paul it tells us in 2 Corinthians how he had been beaten five times. By who? By the Jews. By his own countrymen. Why? Because of his faith in Christ. His faith was legitimate. God saved him clearly. And then I think, I think secondly, we should be warned against presumption. I mean, it's true that all God, whom God is calling, is going to come to faith. They will be saved. But that doesn't mean that any of all race or social class or denomination will be saved. He's not saying that. I mean, in the days of Elijah, we'll look into this next week. God had 7,000 believers, basically. But there were others who didn't obey God, who worshiped Baal. Who were not saved. They were Jews. Even though on the outside they were Jews. And they were part of the in crowd. They weren't saved. See they were what Paul calls. Abraham's natural children. But they weren't children of the promise. Because they never trusted in the work of Christ. They never trusted in God's faithfulness to save them. They trusted in their own works. Don't presume because you come to church you're saved. Don't presume because most of the day you do the right thing, you're saved. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, it says this, make your calling and election sure. In other words, you better make sure that you're saved. It means to be sure you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that you're actually each day following him as your Lord and Savior. You can read about the five foolish virgins in Jesus' parable in Matthew 25. And they thought they were all well off because they had been invited to the banquet. They accepted the invitation. They even called Jesus Lord. They were even waiting for his second coming. But it says they were not ready when he came. You don't want to find yourself in that situation. Thirdly, you should put all your confidence in God, who alone is the source, the sustainer of his people's salvation. I mean, if you're putting your faith and trust in anything else, that's just foolishness. It's foolishness. I mean, think about it. If a person who is a Jew with all the spiritual blessings that they've had as God's chosen people, with all the religious heritage, if they can be lost, certainly you're foolish to trust in your own ancestry, your own nationality, your own education, your own good works, whatever it might be. Jonah 2, 9 says, salvation comes from the Lord, and it comes from God alone. You're not going to find it in a church. You're not going to find it in a denomination. You're going to find it when you go to God broken over your sin and repent and turn to him and realize there's nowhere else to go. Then he will make a change. Make sure you're trusting in him and what he's done for you through Christ. The song says, make sure you are able to sing this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, as we see this example of the Apostle Paul, as he begins to 
point out that you have not rejected your chosen people. And Lord, that as Christians, that just comes as a blessing to us because there's, there's evidence that you'll never reject us either. Because we know that we have not been saved based on our performance, on our good works. We're saved by your grace alone. In Christ alone. And Father, we just pray today that you would drive that point home to us. And help us in the coming weeks as we begin our journey through this chapter. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth. Help us discern these truths. And Lord, we just pray that you would just bless us today. I pray for each heart that's here. If there's a heart here that hasn't trusted in the work of Christ yet, they haven't repented, turned from their sin and turned to the Savior, I pray that you would do that, that calling, that work in their lives even now. That, Father, they could cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive my sin. That's a prayer that, that you will answer, Lord. Oh, we just pray that you would make that a reality in their lives. Draw them to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.